Hi, welcome to Rethinking Possible. I'm Guhe Mwara. And I'm Courtney Martin. On this podcast, you'll hear stories about how social innovators are tackling the world's biggest problems and rethinking what's possible to build a better future. And this is our last episode of the show. If you've been with us through all 10 episodes, thank you so much. On this episode, we'll bring the season to a close with my conversation with Hala Thomas-Dorta. Hala is the CEO and Chief Change Catalyst of The B Team. Well, that's quite a title, Chief Change Catalyst. I feel like that's the new flex is like you make up your own title and you make it very awesome, right? (laughs) Yes, that's exactly what you do. And it's great because it's something that she travels with no matter who she's working for. So here's some things you should know about this before we listen to my conversation with her. The B team is a group of courageous business and civil society leaders working together to transform business for a better world. Ultimately, I've come to understand it as they're trying to think about how to create better, more inclusive corporations and ultimately economies. And I was curious to speak to her because I just think that we think so much about these big problems that we're trying to tackle. But I would say that capitalism has been like a pretty strong root cause of a lot of them. And so I was curious about how you think about using capitalism to solve some of the problems that capitalism has created. Yeah, there's also an interesting parallel here. I remember our first episode was with Rodney Foxworth, who focused domestically in the U.S. on inclusive economies and racial justice. And Hala, now our last, is looking at the same thing, but through this global and sort of scaled up lens, different demographic, different context. But it's fun to see it sort of coming full circle. Yeah, and you can kind of think of it as whereas Rodney kind of works from the ground up, Hala's working from the quote-unquote top down. So let's get into it. Here is my interview with Hala Thomas-Dorta. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Hala. We really appreciate it. So Hala, where are you joining us from today? I am currently in my home country, Iceland, where Mother Nature is very busy creating new land. We had about 50,000 earthquakes over a few weeks and then a volcanic eruption started. Mother Nature opened up even more, all the way down to its very core and is booing out new lava fields right about 18 miles from where I live. Wow, that is both incredible and scary. (laughs) We are used to Mother Nature and her magic in Iceland, and we're sitios wisely. We usually start with quite a big question, which is, what would you say you're solving for? I would say that I'm trying to turn the private sector into an agent for transformative change in how we lead and how we do business, but ultimately also in what are the rules of the game, if you will, the economic system that we all operate within. That is pretty big. <laughs> um, so if if we're going to double down into it, when you say private sector being an agent for transformation, what does that even look like? I think it has to look like a lot of different things right now. But first and foremost, what we've tried to do on the B team is for our businesses and the CEOs of those businesses to lead by brave action themselves. So change starts at home. 
And uh, each of our leaders is trying to set a braver example in terms of tackling the challenges we're facing from climate to inequality to trust. And more recently, COVID came on top of all of the challenges we were already addressing. But I think it's not enough anymore to have um, a few courageous leaders trying to show the way. So we also try to create bold space where we bring people from different walks of life together. The B team was founded by both business leaders and civil society leaders. And we've always known that unless we ask governments to set the right rules of the game, we cannot get the kind of progress we need. So we're into radical collaboration or even coalition building. And we believe it needs to be across all stakeholders in society. And much more recently, we are really trying to get better at what I would call 10 times bolder storytelling, because many businesses are doing great things. And many business leaders know they need to do more, but don't know how. And so telling the stories of those who've gone before them and not necessarily found all the answers, but rumbled with the tough challenges and questions we are facing, we need to be sharing stories of what is working and what isn't working and what are some of the ways that we can work together. And it can no longer be about just your business. It has to be about bringing your sector along, bringing your stakeholder system along, bringing your country along, because this we're running out of time. We have massive challenges in front of us and, and we cannot lead the changes we need without coming at it from so many different stakeholders working together in a way that we have never been able to do before. It seems like the B team has quite a top-down approach and you talk a lot about incentivization. So those in charge of the kind of change that we're going to need to see aren't necessarily feeling the very real effects of where our planet has gotten to. So the smallholder farmers who are facing drought or, you know, plagues of locusts or, you know, the women or minorities who don't see themselves really reflected in global leadership. So how do we think about incentivization for those who aren't necessarily feeling the first pinches of where our, our planet has actually gotten to? I think that's a great question and very timely. And I think part of the problem is that I think in many ways we live in echo chambers, all of us, and we are deeply divided everywhere. And we are more busy othering than we are listening and understanding. And so one of the fundamental approaches to change that B-Team has always tried to take is to make sure that while we believe that you could call it existing power needs to get better, whether it's in government or in business or in civil society, new power or emerging power needs to be at the table. And I would really like to highlight what I think are three levers that are needed to shift mindsets in existing leadership. I think the first lever that I'm very passionate about, and we increasingly try to work uh, deliberately on at the B team, and that is what I would call the time horizon problem. Right now, business is operating on a quarterly time horizon because that's what investors and the capital markets expect. And so no 
big, great, transformative things happen in a quarter. It just isn't like that. It's much more of a long-term journey. And so I think the key lever to shift that mindset is to get the next generation more squarely at the table. And so one of the things we've done at the B team to try to do this is we've had intergenerational dialogues between global CEOs and and climate activists on the front lines. And, And some of those conversations have led to some of these large global companies establishing sustainability councils or shadow boards or bringing in the next generation once a year to question and challenge its boardrooms. So I think the next generation is a key lever to help shift our time horizon. And then the second lever that I'm very, very occupied with now, and we at the B team have a campaign that we call Change Who to Change How, which is very much our push to shift our definition of success and the way we lead. And we don't think we can do that without reaching gender balance and racial and ethnic inclusion around the key decision-making tables. We do believe that if we don't change the boardroom and the C-suites, if they stay at what they currently are, 90% or more white men, we're going to get a male, pale, and a stale world. We're not going to innovate and transform the way we do things. And last but not least, we need to shift our governance philosophy or principles even We have been going by the shareholder primacy um, where we think that the only purpose is to serve them and maximize wealth for them. But we need to go to what I would call the stakeholder value creation era. In your work, you talk about shareholder primacy versus stakeholder capitalism. Just so we're all on the same page with what these terms are, talk me through what you mean when you talk about this. Yeah, for sure. I would say that shareholder primacy is sort of the era we're coming out of. It's been there for 50 years and it's been the idea that pretty much sits at the heart of what I often call the crisis of conformity and leadership, where we keep working harder and harder in order to maximize shareholder wealth, thinking that the planet and the social contract uh, suffering, as they do right now, are somehow not going to cause us problems in the long term. Stakeholder value creation is really about thinking about your accountability for the whole system you operate within. And how can you possibly be sustainable long term when we know that several of the planetary boundaries are already at risk? There is no future in business uh, with that future. So you have to take sustainability seriously now nor can you ever unlock or unleash the leadership and the solutions we need, the innovation we need, if you marginalize more than half of the talent available to you to solve these challenges, nor can you solve anything in a world with a broken social contract and low trust in all institutions. And so more recently, we've seen, for example, our democracies suffering deeply from misinformation and disinformation being spread in social media. And this has happened the world over. And this has led to serious challenges in our democracies. It's not good to do business in broken democracies. But I am personally of the view that the purpose of business has always been, we just lost our ways, to actually work with all of your stakeholders, because that's the best way to unlock value, true, meaningful value. But since we've only been measuring financial profit, we haven't really been measuring the damage we've done, nor for good businesses, the positive contributions that business makes, because fortunately, many do. And 
I guess you could call that stakeholder capitalism. And I know very well how loaded the word capitalism is. And I understand that. But I still think it is the best system we have, as long as we redefine the definition of success to not only be about competing hard for financial profit in the short term, but to also be about caring deeply about people, our only home, the planet, our communities, and about living in a world that works. So Hala, how would you respond to the skeptics? And and I do count myself amongst those skeptics. Um, who, what would you say to those who believe that stakeholder capitalism is is not achievable? Especially, and you've started to talk about it even with um, the different movements going on around the world with Black Lives Matter. And as we think about how difficult it is for, for women in the workplace, we've just started to have conversations about how deliberately exclusive so many economies are and so much of capitalism is. So what what is your response to the skeptics? And how would you say that B-Team is going about creating this new new success metrics? I think that's such a good question. And I think skepticism is understandable. We are seeing a lot more talk than action. But our objective is to try to create an inclusive economy together with others. We want to live in a planet that has seared prosperity and is healthy. So we don't think we can separate any of those crises we're facing from the climate crisis to the crisis of inequality to the crisis of trust. The people we have left behind are going to be further left behind by the crisis we're facing already. And COVID has certainly shown this to be true. So private sector, governments and civil society have to sit together at the table a lot more often and at every decision making table. Part of the problem is we have so many different movements almost fighting against each other, saying what it should be like, what should be measured. And even the best intending CEOs, and I'm not saying all of them are because frankly, many of them are unconscious and not doing enough, but even the most conscious ones trying to do the right thing are a little lost in what good looks like because there are so many different movements asking for different things. So I think one of the things we're really trying to do at the B team is not just to lead by brave action in the way our businesses like Danone and Unilever and Salesforce and other businesses that are at the cutting edge of trying to lead in a better way. That's not enough. We now need to build coalitions with others. We need to shift policies, Uh, working with civil society to shift culture and use culture to help shift the way leaders see and go about transforming their ways. But we need harmonization. So I, I, I don't have a silver bullet Guhe, but I really believe that it is about brave action, radical collaboration, and really principled advocacy around holistic measures in business becoming fast the new norm and no longer accepting the Milton Friedman era and just calling the end of it. Just calling the end of Milton Friedman. Thank him for the 50 years of progress that that era undoubtedly led to, but recognizing the damage that's been done and deciding that this is the beginning of the decade of delivery of business as a force for good. Hala, it seems that you're, what you're asking for is a real shift in mental models and even 
how we understand our world to be organized. And and that's huge. Let's talk about how this is done uh, with maybe what you consider to be a success story, something that you can point to as evidence that your approach can really move the needle. Yeah, it's I wish I had a ton of success stories. My favorite one is probably from my home country, Iceland, when we had a total financial meltdown. So Iceland literally went bankrupt. Iceland is a country of 320,000 people, so a very small country. Our financial institutions, our economy pretty much melted overnight. The entire economy was in freefall. Inflation skyrocketed. Unemployment more than quadrupled. It's been called the most infamous financial meltdown in economic history, or one of them. And our social contract broke like I had never experienced in our small rather cohesive Nordic country called Iceland. The global money markets froze, destroying the Icelandic economy over a summer and creating the country's first ever civil unrest. We stand together and we demand the government do a better job. And in the aftermath, I worked together with uh, leaders from all walks of life, very much from grassroots to entrepreneurs to a minister to a pop artist, you know, a very diverse group of people came together and organized a national assembly um, to discuss the vision and values we wanted to rebuild Iceland on. I think this is that kind of a moment. And while Iceland didn't find all the answers and certainly is still debating many of them, I believe there was a shift when we assembled about half a percentage of the nation in our largest sporting hall and had this conversation. Shift that happened inside of many and shift that many brought into their systems. And we had so much unity when we talked about the vision and values. So we are looking at on the B team right now to replicate and try to model within a couple of leading businesses, how do we have reset dialogues led by employers because right now in a world with broken trust it's a fact that people trust their employer more than anyone else in society and we're sort of hoping to um, explore if employers can convene their full stakeholder system co-creating the path towards shared prosperity on a healthy planet we don't have all the answers but many solutions do exist but together we can more likely tap into the wisdom of the crowd and find better solutions. And only by doing it together will we trust those solutions and have ownership and executing on the back of them. Well said. Um, Hala, we've talked a lot about your work, but would love to know a little bit more about you. So you've talked about the internal shift that needs to happen. And I would love to know when that internal shift happened for you. You had quite an illustrious and celebrated Korea and and now you're working with the B team to to transform private sector. When did the internal shift happen for you? I don't know that I believe there is a moment. I think it's a collection of a lot of different things and nor do I think I have fully made the shift nor anyone else I know. What I mean by that is I believe there's a leader inside of every single one of us and frankly the most important work we can do in life is to try to unleash that leader in service of the greater good. And I think it's a journey. And so I would credit some of my conscious racing to where I was raised and by who I was raised. I was raised in Iceland, a Nordic country where sustainability and equality are more normal than in many other parts of the world, where capitalism has been 
practiced with greater compassion than in many other parts of the world. And with two parents who both worked, my father as an entrepreneur trying to create sustainable heating system out of geothermal energy, which was very revolutionary when I was growing up and still is for many parts of the world. And a mother who was a special education teacher and cared for those society had left behind. So I guess you could say that being born in Iceland was my luck. Being born to those parents, giving me both a, a sort of a passion for thinking that solutions are there uh, for many of our challenges and and they can be sustainable, but without care, society isn't worth much, has given me sort of good grounding. And then becoming a mother and having the luck again to giving birth to a boy and a girl, now 19 and 17, that's probably been the greatest transformative journey of my life. I've struggled with everything I've done. And, and you may see I've had, say I've had an illustrious career. I would just say I've I've actually failed a lot, and um, and I think that's been part of uh, the gifts that life has given me because I've often taken on something that people didn't believe in, and I've often been asked not to do something or or discouraged from doing something because I have had this, I guess, this inner longing to do right by my children and their generations and the next generations. I've always sort of had that inner voice in me. I left corporate America because I didn't find meaning there. I didn't know what meaning I needed, but I knew that I didn't find enough meaning at the time. Um, I was part of founding a university because I thought we needed to change how we teach. I was part of running a women empowerment and entrepreneurship program because I thought there was girl power in the world that wasn't being unleashed. Uh, I founded an investment firm because I, the investment sector didn't make any sense to me. And I thought they were working uh, on large egos and, and very small definitions of success. And I wanted to do something about it. And I ran for president because the next generation asked me to. And I had asked them so often to lean into leadership that I thought I couldn't do another speech if I became a victim to my own inner voice that all, you know, or my imposter that voice inside that asks, who are you to run for president? Or who are you to change the world? Or who are you to raise your voice or, or, or have an opinion about anything in this world? And it asked me that in every instance that I've done anything, Guhe, I've had that voice, but there's a voice, deeper voice. There's a more important you behind that voice that you need to listen to. And a better question is, who are you not to? Um, I've also chosen very deliberately every day I wake up the energy and the characteristics that I want to stand for. And I choose to try to be a good human being. And I choose to see others as human beings, even those I disagree with. And that I find is the greatest challenge in life. It is actually seeing the human being and the people who disagree with um, the science or disagree with the need to do right for the next generation and think they have the right to take out profit in the current their current lifetime at the expense of future generations. And I find that extremely challenging. And there was a period in my life when I wanted to burn bras and scream um, at people. And I did some of both of that. But um I've come to a place where I think maybe leadership today is more about building bridges. And so a lot of this is about managing your own mindset. I don't know if any of that helped. Go ahead. 
Absolutely. I am writing notes and so much of what you're saying feels so counterintuitive to what um, I've come to understand to be kind of capitalism's way of working, which is you just work, 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 and you don't give um, thought to your own self and to what you need. And, you know, rest is almost a dirty word and there's almost a badge of honor in, in burning out because you're working so hard. And so that's really powerful because it, again, speaks to that um, mental model mindset shift that that you're after that it's not just about what you do in your nine to five but it's really a, a way of being and a way of living so um on this show we talk to a lot of solvers who are who are trying to solve a, a range of issues and many of these issues are generational so our guests see themselves as part of a chain of people who over time do their part by moving the needle by inches do you see yourself in this way and if you do who do you think came before you and who and what kind of leaders do you hope will come after you? Oh, I love that question. I have always said that I stand on the shoulder of courageous women who came before me and that it is my duty to lend my shoulders for um, the next generations of girls. I talk a lot about girl power to stand on my shoulders. So one reason I ran for president is I thought after having a male president for 20 years in a country that had the first woman democratically elected president in the world, was just sad that I didn't see a woman who was gonna run. And I thought all these generations of girls aren't gonna see a woman running because I was lucky enough to grow up when women in Iceland took the day off. In 1975, on my mother's birthday, all the women in Iceland, or 90% of them, participated and said, we're doing no work this day. To show that equality matters. And nothing worked in Iceland that day. And after that, five years later, Iceland was the first to elect Madame Vigdis Fimboadóttir, a single mother, as president. And it was, you know, she stood on the shoulders of, of, of their collective efforts. And so I've always been very mindful of, of this generational way of thinking about things because I was given great gifts. But it is even bigger than that, Guhe, because this is just what I've experienced in my lifetime. When you calculate what we've done to the planet, our only home, and what is going to happen unless we have a radical transformation, I see this not just as a generational justice um, to take care of the things that are going to impact next generations. I also see it a little bit about this whole, we are one. We are not separate. We are interdependent. The generations, women, men, or people who don't want to identify as either gender, um, you know, government, business, we live in an interdependent world. We've been told a story that we are somehow separate and have separate value. And so I think, I think a lot about what I do as I'm just doing my piece in that oneness. And the only way I can try to do my piece in that oneness is if I can have one life. I have never been able to separate work and life. So when I've made hard moves between countries with young children or teenage children, and I've done many of them, 
I've seen, I've had to think hard before making those choices. Will this offer my children a growth experience? Will they be better at being one with the world if they know more of the world? And I think the same about my husband, who has given up his things to support me and vice versa. So I, I think I... I think I'm not one of those women who talks about work-life balance, even if balance is one of my principles in life. But balance for me is just such an over-encompassing word. It is about balancing the needs of all in that system of one. It is about balance of taking care of myself and taking care of my only home, the planet. So I think I would like to say that maybe, and now I'm going to go out on a limb here, maybe us women have a more systematic view of success, a more whole view of success. And while we're perfectly capable of competing as hard as capitalism has trained us and taught us to do, we're not capable in the long run in doing so at the expense of other parts of the system because we know it doesn't work in the long run. Well, I'm definitely here for more women leaders and just just seeing more representation across the board, um, especially if it comes with really shifting systems. So I want to end by asking if you have what we call on the show words to live by. Is there a quote or a poem, a song, a prayer that you've used as a guide in your work and in your life, something that you go back to and draw strength from? There are many, and I've always been drawn to inspiration from others. If I may, I would like to share though very openly that what has mostly helped me stay the course is my own manifesto or my own moral compass. And I basically wrote one probably 16 years ago and I updated it several times in my life. The last update came after I ran for president, so four years ago or so. And it basically, in it, I put a picture of myself, a picture that I liked, which is very hard for most women to find, but a picture where I felt like I was saying something and using my voice. And I was wearing an Icelandic national costume, which sort of roots me, the costume women who came before me uh, wore. And in it, I gave myself a title so it wouldn't matter where I was working. I wouldn't attach my identity to the role I was in at the time because we go in and out of roles. And I gave myself the title change catalyst and so no matter what I'm in including when I became CEO of the B team I I added CEO and chief change catalyst because I wanted to remind myself that I was in this role to be a change catalyst I outlined what my purpose in life is and what my principles are that are going to guide my way towards living that purpose and my purpose is basically very simply put and perhaps not elegantly but I like to keep it simple to inspire and empower authentic, gender-balanced, and principled leadership. And then I have principles to guide me what that means. Four principles. Freedom to be me, to never forget about that real voice, that real me that sits behind some of the nonsense that I often confront in my roles. Number two, courage to lead change, to remind me that it's about courage. So even if I don't have the confidence, I can go ahead and try things because I need courage to lead change. Balance to be at my best, which is both about life-work balance, but it's about all those other balance we spoke about. And inclusion, because we beats me. 
And this is very much what guides me. And I go back to when I'm making a decision. I had to think hard when I was asked to become CEO of the B team, if I could live my purpose and really meaningfully live my purpose in that role, if I could live by my principles in that role, if I could be a change catalyst in that role. But because you asked for a poem, I thought I would also read one because I, I find many poems helpful. <laughs> and in my dark days, I often look to poems. So this one is from Rupi Kaur, who you may know. I don't know it by heart, but I, I love this poem. The necessity to protect you overcame me. I love you too much to remain quiet as you weep. Watch me rise to kiss the poison out of you. I will resist the temptation of my tired feet and keep marching with tomorrow in one hand and a fist in the other. I will carry you to freedom. Love letter to the world. Wow, I love Rupi Kaur and that's just incredibly powerful. Um, I know I have homework as well because I need to think about what is my personal manifesto and how, how does that become some words that I can live by. Hala, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom uh, and all of your thoughts today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Guhe. I really enjoyed speaking with you. I hope to meet in person. Man, Hala, she came to play. That was really fun. I love how you pushed her on the plausibility of what she called stakeholder capitalism, right? I was wondering, did you feel more or less cynical about capitalism after this conversation? Um, well, I think that I feel kind of the same, which is still really, really cynical. I just don't believe that the, <laughs> if the thing that broke us can really fix us. But the thing that I was really inspired by with Hala was, one, she wasn't defensive about it. And two... I don't think she she offered up any solutions because she recognized that like this is really about coming together and um, finding community. And it's I guess like, you know, the business world isn't somewhere where you, you talk about community too much. But it's just like really in keeping with a lot of what we've heard that I don't think she thinks that the, the B team or even herself have all the solutions for where we're going to go from here. Um, or what role uh, corporates are going to play in that. But I think I was really inspired by just her you know what, I'm going to try attitude about it. So pleasantly surprised all around. What did you think, Courtney? I, well, I, I do find her to be just, her sort of enthusiasm is so infectious and her humility. You know, she she is working in the private sector, but she doesn't walk with that kind of like private sector naivete that I sometimes hear people who are making you know, a triple bottom line change or whatever sometimes sound like. Um, I did, one thing I was thinking about is, you tend to hear people say that women grow more radical with age. And I was kind of like thinking about you guys, this intergenerational conversation. And I was thinking like, in some ways you're more radical because you're saying like, we're not using the master's tools to dismantle the master's house, like screw capitalism. So one could perceive you as far more radical. But then I was also like, oh, it's kind of radical to be like change is so needed it's so urgent and I've seen a lot I've been around a lot in Hala's case she's worked in government she's worked in so many sectors and I refuse to take a stance where I'm not going to try to move the private sector like there's actually something kind of radical in its own way about that do you know what I mean 
Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think that the thing that Hala has is is credibility um, within that space that, you know, I'm, I, I'm happy to, you know, tell whichever corporates that capitalism is in the way, but what I come off as is naive. But she has the experience and the gravitas to, you know, be heard in those rooms. And I think in those pale, male and stale spaces, you do need someone who speaks the language. Everyone needs to come and get their people. And Hala's come, you know, she's gone to go get her people. Yeah, that's that's really well put. And I think it, it speaks to this larger, you know, urgency. We need all in this ecosystem of social change, like there have to be all kinds, right? We need people who want to be in the private sector pushing there. We need people who want to be within the public sector working in government. We need people who want to be a nonprofit. We need like total anti-organization people who are making art and, you know, hitting the streets and organizing. It's just, it's going to take all of us, which I think is actually a beautiful segue to this is, you know, our last episode of this season. It is. And we have, you know, speaking of our people, we have like, we've gotten to talk to so many incredible people and we've gotten to be in conversation over all these episodes in a way that's just been such a gift so i want to say thank you to our listeners and thank you to you guhei yeah well thank you too courtney i've really enjoyed just how much i've been challenged how much i've been moved by a lot of these conversations i definitely didn't come into this thinking that i would come out so enriched um and i hope the listeners have been as well yeah please if you have enjoyed this season let us know and let us know who you would be most excited to hear us talk with for future season what issues do you wish we'd explored what did we get wrong Um, we really genuinely love feedback i hope you've uh, gotten that from guhei and i and who we are over the course of this is that like we are works in progress and we're just really interested in in hearing what you thought warts and all and you know we can't wait to speak with you again sometime This podcast is brought to you by The Skoll Foundation, powering social innovators to transform our world. Rethinking Possible is produced in partnership with Aspen Ideas by Golda Arthur, with help from Jessica Flutie, Ava Hartman, Ryan Jacobs, Trisha Johnson, Daniel Marcus, Marcy Krivenen, and Zach Slobig. Our theme music is by Wonderly. Thanks for listening. Hey, listeners, quick thing. If you're new to the show, welcome. We hope you're enjoying listening to these conversations as much as we enjoy having them. And if you're already a subscriber, a fan if you will, even, then you'll notice that we've had a bit of a rebrand by changing the show's name to Rethinking Possible. Hey, different name, same conversation, same great co-hosts with some of the world's most extraordinary people trying to solve some of our toughest, most complex problems. We still love complexity. You know, we should have just called the show Complexity. There's probably a trademark on that, though. You think? I do. It's cool. I kind of like Rethinking Possible. I do, too. It does what it says on the can, man. Thanks for listening, and see you on the next episode.